listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. It's a real pleasure to have my friend David Faber here with us tonight. Um, I have wanted to turn the camera on David for a while, given that David every day does so much work on the markets and has to ask those great questions that he asks on CNBC of all the major actors in the markets. But you never get to sit there and say, well, what do you think about this? Because he's always asking the questions of the people who are in the markets. So it's the opportunity to turn it around. So David, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Pleasure. I have no thoughts about anything. That's why I just ask questions though. So this could be very short. He's got lots of thoughts. And uh, I, I wish we'd had drinks brought in here because you've got those uh, little armrests now that you can lower. I, I think it's like being on a plane. You can lower your, your tray table and get ready to take off here. Um, so let me start here, David, somewhere where I don't think anyone in the room would think I would start. You had an interview with the head of the PGA and the Saudi PIF in June, where the two of them said a deal is imminent. We're going to get this done and bring the PGA tour and live together. Um, maybe not so much. What's your take on that? Have you been tracking that since then? Cause John Rahm just jumped over to live. Yeah. And, um, it doesn't look like we're going to have a unification of the PGA and live, or maybe we are, you know, Monaghan was, um, on a stage with my colleague, Andrew Sorkin last week. And I was actually there at least enough to, to listen. I had been doing reporting on it. Willie's referring to back in June when they made the stunning announcement that they were going to merge, essentially. The way it was played in many ways is really that PGA was getting sold to the Saudis. Um, that wasn't necessarily the case, but it stunned a lot of people. I broke that story. And then we, I had Yasser al-Ramani, who runs the PIF from Saudi Arabia, and, uh, and Jay Monahan. Uh, with me for an interview. Um, they were not, Jay in particular, you know, it was very curious as to why they chose to communicate in the way that they did. They had told the players literally just, I think, minutes before. I don't even think it was hours. Um, and the rollout is, I think Monaghan fully admits at this point was disastrous. And since then, I've been tracking it, but I haven't really said much at all on air because I haven't found anything concrete enough to say other than this thing is taking forever. It may still happen in some form is the sense I'm getting from people who are involved. Uh, for a period of time, you had a lot of potential other bidders who wanted to put money in who feel like there is a real opportunity there. Um, some of them have gone away. Um, Endeavor uh, is not going to do it. Uh, there was a there was a, a, a group associated with Henry Kravis that's not going to do it. The Liberty? Redbird, the Redbird guys, what? Has Liberty looked at doing it? Yep. I li yes, they have, as you know. <laughs> um, I'm allowed to ask questions of that. You telling everyone that I know the answer unclear. to the question. Well, I don't, well, but do but we don't know whether they're really going to bid. Correct. I think Greg Maffei, who runs Liberty, is interested, but they're always interested. But whether they're actually going to be there in a significant way, I don't know. So you uh, said, and Redbird, I think, is perhaps the, one of the more, if not more substantial potential bidders. But Liv is still there. And the players have become much more important, as they should have been from the very beginning, in the whole process. So it's Tiger and it's um, Rory. Rory. Uh, and it's been fascinating to just watch since then. Randall Stevenson stepped down. Um, there's been a lot of tumult. And it'll be interesting to see what, what actually occurs. They keep saying they want to try and get something done before the end of the year. As we all know, that's looking right less, around the corner. less likely. So you mentioned, David, that you, A, broke that news, but then have subsequently gotten a lot of, if you will, chatter that hasn't been substantiated enough to put on the air. How do you get your news? And then also, how do you fact check it before you bring it on the air? Well, it depends. In it, uh, as as you know, every situation is somewhat different. But I mean, in the in the in the sense of this, it just there are a lot of people chasing the story. I do know many of the players. 
and I am checking in with them somewhat regularly. Sometimes they won't say anything to me. Other times they may share some things. But nothing where I feel like am I really advancing the story in a way that I need to on this in particular. Remember, this is a, a of wide interest, I think, to, to a certain audience, but it's not public companies. In my audience, you know, if there was something incremental that really mattered and would move a stock price, I'd be more likely to do the incremental story. Right. And this one, I've been less likely, Willie, because I sort of feel like, well, if I can get when there's really a deal and I can be the first to report that, great. But otherwise, what's, it's, not, it's not, I don't think, something that at least for me has, has moved the needle enough for me to sort of go with something that's kind of wishy-washy or incremental or they're almost there, but they're not quite. Or. But so you get, I mean, you're sitting on set, you get a, a text from a friend who's at a desk at a hedge fund saying, we've got chatter that this is happening or what have you. How do you then stop and either say, I got to fact check it, I got to triangulate it, I got to send it to my research team. What I'm wondering about is when, I mean, you've broken a lot of news. How do you, you're, you're not taking everything you hear and just putting it onto national no, I'm television. No, I'm not taking my, almost, I'm not taking almost anything I hear. Because so I hear a lot. Talk us through the process because well, it, who I, fact checks it for you? Me. You. Yeah, of course. Uh, it's only me. I don't rely on anybody else which is why I don't break a lot of stories these days. You got to work really hard to break a story. It means calling everybody and feeling absolutely 100% that you're right when it's something of great significance. I mean, again, a stock moving because of X is not the same thing as company X buying company Y for $50 billion. Right. Um, or well-known CEO stepping down. Or, I mean, name your sort of important situation. In those kinds of cases, if I do, I'm lucky enough to sort of get something, I'm going to call as many people as I possibly can and think about who would be in a position to actually know. Um, the har hardest thing I these days after doing this as long as I have is frankly trying to remember who it is I know who might know something. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like who, and that that's very difficult uh, now for me. I'm, and I'm waiting for generative AI to really help me. Uh, like, <laughs> We're gonna just go through all of and tell me who, because I've forgotten, like who, and half the time, and then, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, of course. Why didn't I call this person or that person? Because, of course, they, they would have known about this. So, um, but on something of substance or significance, those are the kinds of calls I'll make until I'm satisfied that it's absolutely true. And thankfully, rarely in the last 30 years have I not been right on a situation like that. So go to company X buying company X. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you went down to Austin to do an interview with Elon Musk this past summer. Yeah, in May, actually. In yeah. May. Yeah. Um, you saw Elon's interview last week with Andrew I at did. Dealbook. I was there, actually. You were there. Yep. What's your take on Anybody that? Anybody else in this room at that conference last week or no? Okay. Um, what's my take on what? What's the question? Come on, we got we got we're gonna get you better at this. Yeah. Yeah. Um pointed questions. Pointed questions. Yeah. Did Elon's comment to his advertisers on X surprise you? Yes. <laughs> yes. This is where if I'm sure you may have seen the news where Elon Musk said they can go fuck themselves. Um, and I'm just quoting him. So Did he actually said that. Uh, and he actually said that. Did that surprise and you? He kind of called out Bob Iger. They weren't quite the same sentence oh he very from but he my did read, say he very well much i mean did. i was there he did say bob are you in the audience after he'd said advertisers you can go right yeah um yeah i think it was it was shocking um andrew was surprised i know that you know in may though andrew was so surprised he didn't know how to react he didn't really i mean my favorite part of the whole interview though is when elon said yeah we're old friends john he called him john that was so funny <laughs> I just, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, and Andrew said, uh, Andrew. Andrew. Um, yeah. But, uh, but what's it like to sit down with someone like Musk? I mean, you've sat there in a stool yeah, yeah, right yeah. in front of him. Yeah. As, live on television. Actually. I know live on live, television, yeah. but I mean, I don't know how many people in this room have met Elon Musk, but what's yeah. it like? Is he a difficult person to interview? Well, he's difficult in a way. And he's also the best person you could possibly interview because, um, Nothing is off limits at all. Ask me anything. He will answer what you ask him without his PR person in his head, without his general counsel in his head, without anybody in his head. So that makes for an interview that is almost 
always going to have something like what occurred with Andrew last week, or frankly, also was very similar with me where we had this 12-second pause. You count 12 seconds on live television, it's a long time. And where then he's quoted, misquoted, but quoted um, the Princess Bride, if you recall, and then basically said very similarly, though not quite with the curse words about his advertisers, I don't care. I'm going to say what I want, even if it costs me money. That's what he said to me back in May. He obviously continues to feel that way. But it, um, Musk is endlessly fascinating from my perspective, obviously incredibly controversial um, at this point. Unfortunately, I think in some ways, uh, he continues to be what I say on TV all the time because I think it happens to be the case, the most consequential businessman on the planet. You know, it's not just like he's some guy you can, who you can get in a chair and he'll say crazy things. Like he's incredibly important. Um, and so we care what he says. It makes it even more chilling in a sense how the storm going on in his brain uh, is sometimes to hear. But it's fascinating to sit with him. Uh, and it was the best part about that, actually that whole process for me with Musk was the setting up of the interview. Because when we sat down, Willie, he sat down, he had his uh, two-year-old son X who he, who's with him everywhere. I knew he was finally there because we were waiting last week. And then I saw X, I saw this, and I was like, oh, Elon's here because he, the kid came in first. But I thought he was going to sit down with his son on his lap. At, at deal with, no, New York. with, with me. Yeah. And then he, he didn't, he left him outside the room. I was like, oh, thank Um, But <laughs> then he just sat down and we started the interview. Um, I guess my point is that my real interactions with Musk were in the months prior to the interview, were the phone calls that we had, were the discussions we had prior to that. Walker & Dunlop, one of the largest commercial real estate and advisory firms in the country. You start the communities. Our ideas and capital make them possible. And tune in to the Walker webcast hosted by CEO Willie Walker for exclusive insights on commercial real estate. Another person who you mentioned in that is Bob Iger, someone you know very, very well. Um, I guess the first question on Bob, you came out to Sun Valley last summer and did an interview with Bob that broke some news. Um, a, that he was a little tone deaf to the Screenwriters and Actors Guild and got himself in a, in a, in a lot of uh, trouble after his comments to you. But then the second thing was that they were going to spin off cable. Um, a couple questions on Iger. First of all, round two on his leadership of Disney, as effective round two as he was on round one? I think jury's still out. I think it's harder than he thought it was going to be in some ways, as he indicated to me. Willie's referring to this interview that I did with Iger last summer in July where... We were in Sun Valley uh, and um, he decided, he unloaded on an, any number of things and he and I do know each other well and we're very comfortable with each other, but it went even beyond sort of what I might've anticipated. He did say at the time, at least, that certainly ABC was potentially a sale candidate. He indicated that ESPN was something that they'd want to find a partner for, though he did clearly state at the time, and that continues to be the case, that it's not for sale. ESPN, but that there were non-core assets. He talked about, though, at the time as well, Willie, that things were even worse than I thought. Right. And I do think he meant that. I think that he had an anticipation when he came back a little over a year ago that things weren't great at all, but it's even more challenging. And by that, I think he means, you know, the, it's the world I live in too, the dissolution of the cable ecosystem, which is just going away very quickly. It has been going away quickly, but we all thought it would sort of slow. Instead, it sped up. And that's putting a lot of pressure on the business. Obviously, all of these companies are trying to develop a direct-to-consumer business can really make money and have a real margin. Netflix is the only one that can do it right, right. now. Um, so he's under a lot of pressure. And I think the jury's still out on, to whether, on whether or not round two is you know, how he'll be judged. So you watch the media industry very, very well. You, you report it very closely. Um, the, the content wars, Amazon... Netflix, Apple, the amount of money that they're pouring into content. Is this sustainable or do they all wake up one day and say, guess what? We're not getting the return off all of this. And all of us as consumers don't have the myriad of options that we have today as it relates to the depth of content we're getting out of Hollywood. Yeah. I mean, we ask this question a lot again in the media world, because when you're competing against an Apple or an Amazon or an Alphabet, you, I mean, it's, you can't even really call it competition. They can do whatever they want. And I don't know the answer. 
you know, a number of Amazon shareholders through the years have said to me, God, if they just stopped doing content, would people really not take Prime? And they would save, I don't know, 10, $12 billion a year, boom, right to the bottom line, potentially. Um, it does get back to a larger question, I think, which we should all be thinking about to a certain extent, not with Netflix as much, but with those three other companies, is just how enormous they are. Yeah. It, it, it boggles. I do talk about it on air occasionally, just try and stop and get people to focus. I mean, Apple has a $3 trillion market value, does over well over, it does $100 billion in earnings a year. Right. I mean, all the numbers, the CapEx numbers from Alphabet, from Amazon, from Microsoft, these companies are so enormous. It's, you know, I don't even know how you regulate them in a way, right? We all know the FTC and the DOJ are being tough, but their, their platforms, their power, their size and influence is so enormous. So it, the media business is just this little thing for them. Right. I mean, does any Apple, who, it doesn't even move the needle what they spend. So I want to talk about how much time you and Kramer spend focusing on the big seven, the magnificent seven, the Fang plus three, whatever you want to call it. Um, but before I get to that, one final question on media and cable. You work for a diversified media company, but at the end of the day, Comcast is a cable company. Mm-hmm. How long until we cut the cord? How long until no one in this room has a cable running into their house? A decade? Well, you'll always have a cable running into your house because that's broadband and that's life. So we're broadband companies, uh, and and uh, Brian Roberts, I mean, and and um, and Chris Winfrey at, at Charter now the CEO there, the two largest cable providers. I mean, really, if you, it's not the cable side and video that is a that is at issue. If you were to say to Comcast, you can only have broadband subscribers. Everybody cuts their video. We'd be fine. Where it hurts is NBC. It's all the sub fees. Um, it's why we're all going trying to figure out all sorts of different revenue models or ways to raise revenue. And obviously, so many are going to direct to consumer general entertainment. But, um, you know, so you'll always have broadband. In fact, you're, you're going to want more and more and more and more of it right? to do what you need to do. Broadband is being threatened a little bit right now by fixed wireless, 5G fixed wireless. Verizon offers it. T-Mobile offers it, but it's capacity constrained. It, they, they offer it, you have to give them your address specifically, and they offer it where they know that they have a lot of capacity. Maybe they got a lot of towers, they don't have a lot of subscribers, but over time, they're going to want to sell more subscriptions to the phone because uh, the margins on this are not nearly as good. So um, that's going to peter out, but right now it's competing. And then you've got the overbuilders, which is the AT&Ts of the world, uh, which are building fiber. Again, not to deliver video per se, but what's broadband these days? Broadband's right. everything. So, um, so no, I mean, the cable business, so to speak, that you're talking about where I have cable and I pay for a package and I get all these channels that I don't watch, that's going away every day, more and more. But on that, just final, final thought on that. Um, basically, we've gone down to two newspapers in the United States, yep. the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. You all have differentiated yourselves as the go-to business channel. Does it all consolidate down to that and you guys? I mean, in the sense is, isn't there something of the brand of CNBC that says that you are the winner there and kind of depending, note, I mean, I watch a lot of you streaming to my iPhone. I'm not sitting at home plugged into my television. I'm getting it on my iPhone, but I'm still getting your content. Yep. I mean, that's the challenge. Uh, And yeah, I would hope that our brand, like other brands in certain areas, will take us to this new world. We're getting there. But the transition for all of these businesses is very hard because the cable ecosystem, and I was out in Denver with Malone recently as well, sort of the the father of it all uh, in some ways, um, uh, was an incredible business for, for 25 years. CNBC, for example, we had all these people who don't watch us still paying us. That's the beauty of that business, right? right. You had 100 million subscribers at the height of cable, let's call it. Most of them were not watching CNBC, but they were all paying us our 30, 40 cents a month. Right. And now you go to a world where you only actually are operating with the audience that watches you. 
well, they have to pay a lot more, but what's the willingness and how much? How do, and then how are you reaching them? And how in any way can you possibly replicate the kind of profit margins you had under the old system? That's the basics of what's happening in this business. And it's hard. It's really hard. Talk for a moment about, you know, that half an hour that you have with Kramer in the morning. Um, you both, you focus a lot on equities mm-hmm. and also the magnificent seven. Yeah. Okay. And then in the next, when Sarah comes on at the top of the hour, the two of you focus more on macro. Right. Okay. A, is that all by design or is it you and Kramer talking about Alphabet and whether Alphabet's a great company to invest in or Sarah and you talking about Fed speak and whether rates are going up or going down? I base what I report on and what I'm interested in based on what my sources, the people that I talk to are interested in. That tends to be hedge fund guys and ladies, investment bankers, CEOs and the like. So I go sort of where they go. Yep. Kramer is, you know, talking about anything, but typically, <laughs> typically it's stock related. Um, he does do an enormous amount of work. Yeah. Those sometimes of, it's those hard stacks to know. of paper yeah. that he literally like this morning, I watched him and he had, you know, yeah. this state, are those analyst reports that yeah. he's reading? Yeah. Pretty much it mostly is. analyst pretty much reports. Mo- yeah. Analyst summer, reports. summer transcripts, especially earnings season. Um, you know, their, their calls, their earnings calls, but, uh, yeah, it's mostly analyst reports. Um, and the, the, the back and forth between the two of you. Yeah. Completely natural. Yes, absolutely. There's nothing scripted in the show that we do that first hour, actually the second hour either really. Um, but it, it, you know, to answer your question, I mean, we played a sort of, I played a, I mean, Jim's there, obviously loves talking about stocks. I'm going to talk, try and go a little deeper on certain things that I may have found some things out about, or at least provide context or some analysis around. Uh, Sarah loves macro. Yeah. And so I'm like, great, have at it. And I like to listen to what she has to say and follow up with questions to her. And the Andrew Joe um, relationship in the morning scripted. We're right? not scripted at all, at all. All right? right. The only thing I have in front of me is I know, you know, introduction to a guest, uh, or, you know, um, um, a number that just came out for a economic number or something along those lines, but any of our back and forths never. Um, we, we had the show sort of, we know kind of what we'd like to hit during the course of the show, but frankly, we go all over the place. It's a, it's nice. It's a great freedom. It's makes it fun. It's something we started, I think, frankly with, I started with Joe Kernan 28 years ago when we launched Squawk Box. Then it was sort of unique. Now everybody does it, but then we, we were, we were petrified, but we were like, (laughs) okay, well, let's just talk you know, about, and let's not rely on having something written. And, and that was sort of a unique moment. I think it was before morning Joe It was before a lot of these kinds of shows. You went down and did a special on Exxon Mobil. Uh, I want to talk about oil generically, but two questions on that one, will you keep doing those types of large, long format analyses of companies like Exxon Mobil? Does the, does the, does the, does that format work? on cable mm. these days. Mm-hmm. And then second of all, when you went down to tour and see ExxonMobil, what was the most impressive thing you saw as you toured their operations or they took you out to see a drilling field or whatever else? I mean, we don't, I don't think most people in this room get to go see the inside of an operation like ExxonMobil. Is there something you saw that just was like, wow, this is what a massive corporation with massive capabilities can do? Yes. I mean, I was so happy to finally do that and get Exxon to agree to allow me to do a documentary on them. It, it's a while ago already. We, we reported this, let's call it in early 2022, but let's first half of 2022 and it aired in June of 22. I am actually, I do have Darren Woods, the CEO of Exxon tomorrow joining me uh, on set. Um, sort of as a, a, hopefully a good interview to check in on. They, they put out some new goals in terms of uh, low carbon solutions. Um, I do those because they're the best thing you can do in terms of as a journalist, I feel like when they work, they are also are collaborative and they're the most fun because you have cameramen, you have, uh, you people, you write it with your producers, um, you have editors, it brings together so many different people and there's nothing more gratifying than when you have a big group of people who can do a piece of work that really is stands the test of time. And so I've done many of these documentaries through the years for CNBC. 
I don't do them as often now. Including, just so everyone in the room remembers, he's the one who went down and did the MCI piece when MCI oh, was world, just about to, world before time. or after they blew world, world No, it was after the fraud. Yeah. It was after the fraud. Bernie Ebers. Yeah. yeah. And, and you yeah. ran across him in his yeah, hometown, Brookhaven, right? Mississippi. Yeah. Yeah. You're like walking along with a camera well, we crew and right the, up to We him. were doing the, um, the finale of this documentary on the fraud at WorldCom. And we went down to this town in Brookhaven where he lives, but really it was just my summation. We had all these cameras. It was beautiful. And then Bernie Ebers uh, pulled into town in his pickup truck. I've been trying to interview him for nine months. And then he said, hey, David, welcome to Brookhaven. I was like, hi, Bernie. <laughs> it was a moment. And then my producer, Glenn Rockind, uh, said, uh, I said, Bernie, how about an interview? He's like, no, nah, I can't do that, David. You know, I can't. And uh, my producer, Glenn Rockind, smartly said, well, why don't you take him for a walk? It was the weirdest thing. We walked through this little town, past the barber shop, and past, and I had a cameraman in front of me with a boom mic, and then we had this other camera on a, um, forgetting what they call it. The words escape me now. It's not good when you're on TV and you can't, but um, way up high in the air, and sort of capturing the whole town because this was, you know, for my summation, we were going to have the long shot and then close up. Anyway, we did this walk through town where I asked them all these questions. And of course, then they ended up using that interview in the trial that convicted him and sent him to prison for 25 years. Wow. Yeah. Um, all right. He got so let out. He got let out. Three I, months. I had he passed on that anecdote. He passed tonight, away, by the way. not long ago, and he didn't deserve 25 years. Not at all. But, uh, Right here downtown. I mean, yeah. Um, so you said you have Darren Woods on tomorrow morning. Oil's at 70. Yeah. Interestingly, since the Hamas terrorist attack. I didn't answer all your questions on I know, Exxon, by the way. I'm tell sorry. Me, answer the one about what you, what you was what, the coolest thing you, you said. You know, what, what, what I do love about it. I mean, I, we talk about oil all the time. I'd never been to the Permian. Right. Like, I don't know if people, have you ever been, anybody here been to the Permian Basin, right? Where almost all of our oil comes from at this point. I mean, the Bakken still in the Dakota, but- Mostly it's the mid east of the United States. Like, okay, I sit there talking about it every day. I was like, I gotta go, I've gotta see it. And so there's nothing that can replace that. Seeing how what's going on there, their facilities, the size and scope. You don't want to be there, by the way. It's really not particularly hospitable place. Um, we were in the New Mexico side. It's New Mexico and Texas. Um but it was great because now I know, you know, I kind of have a much better sense of how it works. I also went to Guyana, which is becoming one of the larger oil producers in the world. Um, and we flew out to. Did you fly to a rig? To a giant. Yeah. What you call a rig. Uh, FBO. I forget. It's I always forget the acronym. But and it was unlike anything I've ever seen. I mean, you cannot imagine the size and scope of these projects. And, you know, we all the lights are on. Right. That's all we really care about. Or. There's gas at the pump or whatever it may be. What has to happen and what goes on to make life run properly is incredible. And so it does take me closer to that. And it was, it was, it was helpful. So you won't ask Darren Woods tomorrow morning where oil's going to go, but we're at 70 I, bucks. I might a, actually, because it's down so much lately. Yeah, it's down at 70 he won't bucks. Give, barrel, he right? won't have a great answer, I'm sure, you know. But supply and demand, David. But what's so interesting about it, I think, is that you look at it since the Hamas terrorist attack on Israel and it's done nothing but come down from there. Yeah. A lot of people, when that happened, said we've got conflict in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. We're going to think, thought back to 1972 mm -hmm. when Saudi embargoed the United States and didn't send oil over here. Obviously, the relationships between the United States and Saudi Arabia are dramatically different today. Yes. But at the same time, it's unbelievable if you look at the chart that literally from that point to now, it's just done nothing but come down. By the way, so is the tenure. Um, but when we'll get to that in a second. But um, anything on that? I mean, is it just because of our domestic production that you just talked about coming out of the Bakken? You know how many barrels a day we're producing right now in this country? 13.2 million. Yeah. That's, that's the high. And our that's needs the, are 17? High. Yeah, we're almost, I think, I think we're very close. Yeah. If not above. I think we were at 20 million a day in 20. No, no, no. We've and never. we at 17 a day. Oh, in, in need. In, I'm sorry. In usage. No, usage. Because yeah. we've never been higher in production. Yeah. That helps. That helps. 13.2 million helps. We could be doing more, but we're doing a lot. Yeah. Um, uh, OPEC is sort of trying to, you know, it's, it's also about people's view of future demand right now. Right. That's why the January contract, I think, is trading where it is. And uh, there is still a view that things are slowing. 
or not a view. Things are slowing. The question is, will we have a recession? So um, that's still, that's sort of working its way through. Um, and obviously it's a very different world than it was in 73. So anybody who sort of was taking the template from 50 years ago, that really isn't the way things are right now. That said, doesn't mean this is in a dangerous situation that could result in a very different price for oil. You know, Iran is obviously pumping, but you know where all their oil goes. Right. To China. China. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, but they're only, they're only about 2 million barrels a day. They are. They are. They're, they're China's got relatively China's, small. I mean, right. they're obviously getting it from Russia too. Right. And then they got a lot of other suppliers potentially. And then generating, obviously, um, uh, electricity there, it's still a lot of coal, although they are also the biggest solar uh, in, the, in the world. So talk, you, you mentioned soft landing, hard landing. Uh, talk for a moment. You, you speak to everyone. You speak to bank CEOs. You speak to real estate developers. You speak to tech CEOs. Um, right now, and you had Brian Moynihan on yesterday from Bank of America, um, and Moynihan gave a pretty sanguine, I would say, view mm -hmm. of B of A right now says soft landing for 2024. You hearing anything to the contrary? The only, you know, the only CEO, well, I'm not only, I shouldn't say that. Uh, in the financial world, the one who stood out for being perhaps a little more concerned is Jamie Dimon, I think. You know, we call him Hurricane Jamie. You may recall like nine, um, nine months ago, I'm not even sure, it may have been more. He's like, he said, there's a hurricane coming and right. he was very concerned. He's talked about rates potentially hitting as high as, I think it was six or even seven. Seven, I thought was what he said. Um, yeah. Otherwise, many of the bank CEOs certainly have been much more positive and he's downgraded his hurricane to like a tropical storm. But, um, uh, and then generally I don't hear, I don't, nobody is saying things are bad. Pretty much across the board, unless you're, you know, sitting on a, a big building in Midtown that's B and office space, you know, <laughs> then things are bad. But that's know your, your audience, David. That, Careful. Know your audience. That's for you guys to tell me about, not me to tell you about or me to ask you about, Willie, because obviously, you know, you forgot more about this than I know. But, um, but when it comes to the general economy and speaking to CEOs as often as we do, I have to say for them almost entirely hearing things are still Consumers holding up is what you're going to hear. More or less, consumers holding up. Um, your, your colleague, Steve Leisman, has been excellent on that one. Yeah, Steve is great. Steve has been saying all year long, everyone's been saying the U.S. consumer is going to falter. And it, on that, you had your split screen on the day that the CPI print came out three and a half weeks ago. And there was Steve saying, everyone's been calling for the consumer to fail and the consumer has not failed yet. No, and they haven't yet. And we're all looking at excess savings and everybody measures excess savings to try to understand how much... Firepower is left. The lowest end, and by that I mean people who sort of live paycheck to paycheck, that there is stress there. There is stress there. I'm hearing that more often. Yep. And the credit card data isn't always a great tell there because, frankly, a lot of those people use cash still. Right. Um, so there's that weakening. That's it. I, you know, otherwise, from what I hear, at least as from my vantage point, generally quite positive. I think CEOs are preparing. For things to get tougher. We had the Walmart CEO on this morning. It was my interview. Uh, Sarah did it. Doug McMillan. Um, but they're a pretty good barometer. As good and as you his, can get. I think the quote was that the consumer is watching their spending more closely today than they were. Yes. Yes. But not in any way dire or even, frankly, particularly worrisome right now. That's the, I mean, one of the things that I've heard a lot of recently that I've been checking consistently with bank analysts is this narrative that the consumer is failing and that credit card debt has gotten to a trillion dollars of outstandings and that there are credit card defaults going on all over the system. Mm -hmm. They're not. I mean, you, you, you look at the credit card portfolios of the Discovers, the Amexes, the JP Morgan Chases and everybody. And right now, the default ratio is up at 2.4% of outstandings, which is still 120 basis points below the historic average over the last 30 years. Right. Now it's up from 1.2% last year because we were coming out of the pandemic and everyone had gotten their checks from the federal government and was paying their credit card bills on time. So it looks like it's doubled, which it has, which scares people. But as far as the normalized 30-year average, it's 120 basis points below it. And so, yeah, the consumer is worse off today than it was a year ago, but still from a historic standpoint, it's still hanging very strong. 
All true. Yeah. And in fact, I rely on you to provide those kinds of statistics <laughs> to me. Uh, sometimes during the show, Willie will text me, which I always enjoy. I, I will. And I, just I, fill me in on little things. It's helpful. Actually, I get a lot of texts during the show, which is kind of fun from various CEOs or, or other people. Uh, and it helps make me seem much smarter. I, I I'm like, sir, did you know what, that? Uh, what, what, one of the great <laughs> joys, I will say one of the great joys for me is to be, because I'm in Denver and I'm waking up in the morning watching him to send him something saying, you ought to ask him this. And all of a sudden, about three minutes later, I hear, so what do you think about <laughs> this? And all right, David say, great question. It was great. Um, I want to get a couple of predictions from you before I then open it up for a couple of questions and then let everyone get back to having a drink. Um, the first thing is you're typically asking these questions. We've got a Dow at 36,000 roughly today. Go out a year from now. We up, down or sideways? Come on. No, I, I will not do it. I won't. You make, won't do I it. I won't. I have, what I have to say about the market is useless. It's not. You engage I will with tell, the what, most. Here is what I will tell you. And talk to the here most is, insightful people. Yes, anywhere. Thank you. And I have no idea what's going to happen to the stock market. None. And I'm sure I would be wrong. What I, what I would offer is this, though. I think, and I'm starting to hear this more often, and I and it's something we all should be thinking about. Although the something public markets are, they're not great. They're not they're not working that well. I don't think they're as reflective of fundamentals as they should be. The power and size of these algorithmically driven firms, um, the Citadels, the D.E. Shaws, the Two Sigmas, the Renaissance, Millennium, those algorithms. I mean, some days I'm sort of like, I don't know what's going on here. Like, this doesn't make sense. And I'm sure I know that it is, it's, it's the quants, it's, it's algorithms that are doing this. And that's only going to increase. The fact you asked earlier, why do we talk about seven stocks? Because they represent 30% of the S&P's market value. Right. That's also not great. I mean, that's one of the great. There's some market structure issues that, that we're, I'm, I, that's what I will tell you. We're going to be hearing more about that next year than we did this year. Do you think we'll hear about that? Do we think that Gary, do you think Gary Gensler and Elizabeth Warren will get the memo? I don't know. It's a good question. You tell me, is Gary Gensler going to still be standing in front of his fireplace? <laughs> I'd love that. Gary Gensler has a very nice fireplace in Northwest Washington, D.C. in his home, which every time he goes on CNBC, you see is the backdrop. And it's sort of like, aren't, isn't the federal government supposed to be back at work? And there's Gary Gensler passing regulation after regulation on publicly traded companies and making life harder and harder for us with seemingly no engagement with the outside world. I mean, he's, I, you know, they're still not back in the office, really, I don't think very regularly. No, no, but uh, I, mean, I haven't, he hasn't been on lately. I gave him a lot of, you know, I actually asked him, I'm like, are you ever going to get out of, from in front of the fireplace? And he gave all these reasons why they're operating great. And the SEC, everything's working well and everybody's happy. And then he hasn't come back on. <laughs> no, not with me. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, I don't know that we're going to hear more about market structure concerns or the power of, of these algorithmically led firms. I mean, that's, listen, they're doing well. The money flows to them to a certain extent. Mutual funds continually underperform. Hedge funds underperform, at least those that are not, um, a, as I'm describing. This whole issue on private capital versus public capital is a very big one. Huge. And what you're getting Washington doing is driving more and more companies to stay in the private market or be bought by a private equity firm versus going public. And the burden that they're putting on publicly traded companies um, is making it so fewer pe companies want to be public. And then the irony of the whole thing is that someone like Elizabeth Warren wants the common shareholder to be able to benefit from the equity markets. But she's blocking that out by making them all stay as qualified investors in private equity funds. Yeah, all true. And then you've got the enormous growth of private credit, right? Yeah. Which is now enabling so many companies, as you point out, to stay private forever. Right. Or to go private. Um, and that's only going to continue. Private credit has gotten a lot more, it's getting more scrutiny. Obviously, the banks are yelling and screaming about it because it's disintermediated them in a lot of different areas. And, and they're talking about a lack of regulation. But, you know, the private credit guys are coming back with some pretty strong arguments as to why they don't deserve the same level of regulation. Um, again, I think that will be more of a, that will continue to ramp up in terms of focus next year. 
So my final question then, and then I am going to open it up to a couple of questions and then let everyone get back to it, um, is if you won't give me whether the equities are going to go up or, or the 10 years going to go down, um, anything your friend Steve Leisman is saying that is contrary to the narrative right now that says that we get into 24 and the Fed starts cutting? No. Uh, crisis is always very, very difficult to predict, right? We didn't, I mean, the bank, that mini banking crisis we had that we obviously got past yep. or seemed to have gotten past, like that came out of nowhere, literally nowhere, right? Um, so I can't say that we're not going to have something that changes everything. Um, and who knows, next year is going to be an election year. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, I was going to ask you that. Don't, don't, I don't I was going to ask you that. That was my final Don't one. ask about that. Is it that. Trump, Biden, or somebody else? I have, I mean, a, 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 get show of hands. I would think I have any idea. All right, show of hands. I think hands. a lot of people would show, like sh- somebody else. I'll do a show of hands here. I'll ask it in the exact same way. Trump, Biden, or somebody else. Show of hands. Wait. Trump. Biden. Somebody else. Wow. That's the easy oh. one. That's the easy one. There you go. You can mention that on air tomorrow morning. I won't, but you're all making me feel better. A little bit better. Yeah, a little bit better. Um, okay. I hope that's true. Uh, you know, uh, it's going to be a tumultuous year, most likely in some ways, certainly in that arena. But, um, you know, we, we seem like we're on a pretty good path. It seems impossible, though, that Powell have engineered a soft landing. Like, it just, it's hard to do, right? 100%. 100%. And, still- just, and quite honestly, I don't think he's getting enough credit for having done it. Um, but you know, time will tell whether we actually do have the soft landing. I would say the one other thing on the Trump Biden thing, I saw Biden in Denver last week. He, because he didn't go to the, uh, environment, environment conference, they filled up his calendar and I got a phone call from Senator Hickenlooper saying, Hey, can you come to this thing with Biden? Um, and so I had a little bit of time with the president before he went out and gave public remarks and he was extremely nice and engaging in private, but then he got out to talk to an audience that was no bigger than this. and. There was no energy. Yeah. And I mean, zero energy in the room. And as someone said to me, the issue he faces is that that doesn't change over the next year. So in other words, like you can sit there and say, it's only going to get worse. You know, Russia can call up tomorrow and say, we're out of Ukraine. The economy can go four and a half percent GDP growth between now and the election. And unemployment can go from 3.7% down to 2.5%. He still isn't going to change the one factor that's holding people back from voting for him, which is a very interesting calculus, if you will, as it relates to an incumbent. I don't know that any incumbents ever faced something that they can't in any way manage. Right. I know. Well, we haven't had an 81 year old president before. And unfortunately, or for however you view it, your politics are um, one that is fully 81. You know? Yeah. Um, and I, think I was I was in the White House as well on Friday. At the press party, um, I went with my wife and it was a big group and I couldn't even hear them. Right. Neither could I. Couldn't my my parents were sitting next to me in a room this big yeah. and they were right there and they couldn't hear him. Couldn't hear Both him. my parents are hard of hearing. They have hearing aids, but they they turned to me afterwards and said, we didn't hear a thing he said. I know. I know. He, I mean, a little tough to run for president when you can't be heard. Um, anyway. Um, enough on all that, uh, that let me open it up to a couple of questions. I was encouraged though, by the majority, vast I, I was, majority I, of people I, 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 somehow, I want them to put a name, believe I want to put that, the name to the hand though. That there's going to be something and different. if you look at Robert Kennedy, he put something out yesterday saying I'm polling better than any independent ever has. Um, I, I, I don't know whether that's actually factual or not. Um, questions. Yeah. Great to see you. Um, Thanks. with respect to the amount of fiscal debt, and therefore, annual interest expense, our government has to um, obviously finance, thinking about what the impact that will be on the treasury, you know, long, long duration treasuries. And you guys talk about that because I think we're all looking at rates and assuming the Fed cuts. That means the long rate is going to come down. But what about all the supply that needs to be issued? It's, it, you know, it's funny. We spent, well, there were a few weeks there, particularly as we were heading towards 5%. Where Sarah and I talked about this every day. Um, I don't know if you guys follow Jeffrey Gunlock at all from Double Line Capital. He was a guest, and he, you know, he posited that the Fed is going to be forced to lower rates, otherwise the U.S. budget will be swamped, and that'll be it. Now, if you ask Chair Powell, he's going to be like, "I have nothing to do with fiscal decisions. Uh, I'm only focused on two things, right?" 
And you, you know, asked the head of the I Richmond did. Fed. I asked, I asked, asked the head of the, the Richmond, Richmond Fed. Fed right across yeah. the thing. You said, hey, what about this yeah. thing that we just heard? And he looks at you and goes, not my not, issue. Not my issue. The numbers are the numbers. I mean, if we stay anywhere near our current interest rate, given the amount of refinancing we have to do to, to not to, the refinancing we have to do, not to mention the new de the deficits that we have to finance, we're going to look at $2 trillion interest costs within five years. That'll be, you know, well more than double what the, pan uh, the defense budget. H how are we going to deal with that? How, what are we going to do? I mean, I'll, I, what well, are we going to do? I just challenge the idea that you have a soft landing with that backdrop, with understanding fiscal debt and therefore the government issuing all of these, you know, long duration bonds to finance it. So I don't know how you get a soft landing if the government can't, you know, finance itself. Well, I mean, we all look at the auctions more closely than we had previously. And we remember the market went up when we saw the maturity schedule not that long ago. I mean, who's focusing on the maturity schedule that Treasury was going to be issuing? That said, they're still selling the stuff. There hasn't been a day when it isn't actually selling. Maybe Although that day will come. there was a failed 30-year auction. There was a failed 30-year auction two weeks ago. One. Where they went and it gapped out by 50 basis points and they have to stop the auction when it gaps out by 50 basis points. And so it was a failed auction on 30-year bonds. But that's, I think, one of the main reasons for that is that everyone's moving towards the short duration mm -hmm. because they think that you can go buy a two-year treasury and you're going to get the Fed cutting and that's going to look really good because you're going to be in the money on the shorter paper. So money's moving towards shorter paper rather than the long end of the, of the, right. of the curve. Um, um, yeah, it's a great question. It is something that at least we're aware of. And I, you know, like everybody, I have no idea, but it's something we're not probably talking about as often as we should. Although we are at least trying. I mean, I tried to engage a Fed governor. <laughs> he was have none of it. No, it was amazing. He literally looked right at David. I watched it because I was sitting there shooting him some stuff on the interview. And he goes, what about this? And he just looks right at David and goes, not my issue. Not my issue at all. So, um, yeah. So we started today talking <clears throat> about Elon Musk as the biggest name in business news. 30 years ago when you started, that was probably Jack Welch. And we've seen a lot of people sit in that most talked about seat in that 30-year span. It tends not to end well. <laughs> Whose fall from grace has shocked you the most mm -hmm. from that business pinnacle to where they finish up? Wow. It's a great question. And when somebody says it's a great question to the, the yeah. questioner, it means I have no idea. Right. Um, right. But you do. Um, I do? Yeah. I mean, no. I mean, I, I mean, think about it. Is it, is it Mike Milken? Is it Bernie Ebers? Is but it? Is Milken, it I think of as a, an incredible story because it was the fall. And that was sort of, I was beginning my career in journalism then, starting in 87. That was 89, 90. But the fall and then the rise, mm -hmm. which, I mean, I would love to tell that story if any of you are close to Michael Milken. Put in a good word for me. I mean, I, I do talk to him, but he's never wanted to actually discuss the, the fall. Death. Yeah. Um, uh, that's Jeff a Immelt? great point. Yeah. I mean, Imelt, no, because it was so slow and steady and he never he had- He only destroyed never, $400 billion of market cap. That's <laughs> he, all he did. He made a lot of poor decisions. You know, when you keep paying too much for stuff and selling stuff too, for too little, it catches up with you eventually. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to think about that. It's not something right off the top. Uh, I, you know, of course, we all watch Sam Bankman Freed, but I could care less about him. He wasn't like anybody in my world at all. I had no sense. And he certainly didn't occupy any position for any period of time that we cared about. Um, and I think of Welsh differently. You know, you may say that it was a fall and it was certainly, although I don't think of it as a complete fall from grace in some ways. But I don't even think of him as, con as, 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 I think Musk is singular in how consequential he is, even more than Jobs, even more. I mean, maybe not his impact per se, but right now he's connected in so many different ways. Obviously, Tesla sells more, well, will sell more uh, of Model Y than any car in America and sells clearly more EVs than any company. We're launching... You know, he's launching satellites all the time. He is basically the main provider of those services to NASA and on and on from there. 
I mean, he's so critical to the effort in Ukraine because of Starlink. So he's sort of unique. And obviously, I forgot about Twitter, where he still has great influence, potentially. I just, you know, so are we watching his decline? I do think I worry, worry. I I wonder whether he's going to like something bad's going to happen with him. The the one thing your interview with Musk brought out was his statements about autonomous vehicles and how he believes that an autonomous vehicle is going to be worth 5x what a normal vehicle is because of A, the time it frees up, but B, because it's going to drive you to the office and then it's going to go work while you're in the office. Yeah. And I just think about that and the implications for parking. Yeah. Because all the people in this room are in the real estate industry. Like we're all building buildings as far as multifamily as well as office and retail that have a certain number of parking spaces per user. Yeah. If his vision comes true, and by the way, you pushed him on this in your interview and you said, when do we have fully autonomous vehicles? And he said this year. I know, but he said it. He said it every year for the last seven exactly, years. Exactly. No, no doubt. No and doubt. it will happen eventually. It's going to happen eventually. And, and whether or not his vision of robo taxis, essentially where, you know, you pay more for it, but basically you're splitting revenues with Tesla. Right. Which just increases the margin dramatically because it's when you're not using it, it's out there being used. Right. Whether that ever comes to full fruition, I think is unclear. Um, I remember I'd at least six, it must be six, seven years ago, I was... Travis Kalanick, remember that name, Uber, founder of Uber? And I was having a meeting with him and he was, it was in an office somewhere and he's looking out at the streets of Manhattan. He's like, he said, they're not going to be any garages. And he was like 2017. Right. I think it was, it was before they went public. So I don't even remember, frankly, but, um, it's like next year, two years, he was promising by 2020 or 21, the streets of Manhattan would be full of autonomous vehicles. And he's like, think of it. No garages. And then he also said something I knew. He's like, and the hospitals. I'm like, what about the hospitals? He's like, nobody's going to get injured in car accidents. The emergency rooms are going to be empty. I'm like, that's weird. I don't know if that's true. But so we're still waiting. Uh, and obviously, I don't know what he's up to anymore. All right. On that, um, David, thank you.